people here. It's the winter program. There was winter program last week. But now not to people have winter flown in. Okay. All right. Um, first things first. Um, as many people already know, I have an issue with obsessive compulsive behavior. And so if I suspect that people have smartphones and access to then I can't teach. So if you could put your smartphones in the smartphone bin, then I'll be able to teach. Okay. Um, I figure that a good place to start is hypocrisy. Because hypocrisy. Like being hypocritical? Yeah. I, I like you know, to start with things that are positive and uplifting, like hypocrisy. Today. <laughs> <clears throat> now, does anyone want to volunteer a definition of hypocrisy with the caveat that if you volunteer a definition, I get to pick on you to defend your definition? Yes? Yeah, so I think it's when you do something that you tell others they should not. So everyone is hypocritical? Yes. Mm, I think that's harsh. What if, what if I do so something... What's wrong with being hypocritical? Yeah. You don't think there's anything wrong with it? I think you're implying like a different morality for someone else than you do with yourself. Ah, so uh, are, those don't sound like the same thing. The first thing you said is like, if I tell my kids that they shouldn't lie, and then I lie, but I realize it's wrong, and I feel bad about it, and I, I know I shouldn't do it, and I give in to my human weakness, I, 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 would be, I would say that that's not being hypocritical. Being hypocritical saying my children can't lie, but I can lie because I get special rules, because I get a different morality. But I think that there's also like this component of where you're telling your child that it's wrong to lie, then you lying is still something that's wrong. And it doesn't change that. Just because you have, you have ways of forgiving yourself or you have justifications for it or you have to balance out different like morality hierarchies, I mean, that's... Yeah, but like, if, if I'm but telling someone... The practices. So, so the reason why I'm uncomfortable giving such a broad definition to hypocrisy is that I think it loses its power. It's a very useful thing when it's limited. Okay. I like concepts to be like scalpels. Or to make it more personal, brismila knives. But scalpels. <laughs> In the sense that the sharper they are, the more effective they are. So when you make a concept very sharp, you can wield it and very effectively. When you make a concept very broad, everything gets enveloped into it. So, for instance... Um, if I using I don't using using the, let's use stealing because I think stealing is a little bit more clear cut than lying. If I if I tell my kids not to steal, right, and then I steal, I think there's a very big difference, and should be not not that there's necessarily an issue of better or worse. It just should be treated differently as to whether I see my own stealing as wrong, and I'm trying to figure out how to stop stealing or at least aspire to that, versus where I've actually have two different sets of morality, one that applies to my children, the one that applies to me. And the reason why I think it's helpful to differentiate those two things is that if it's that I think it's wrong and I aspire to changing my behavior, then the question is a matter of um, practice. How do I change the choices I'm making in order to make them more to what I think they're, they're moral choices? Just one second. But if I think there are two different moral codes, one that applies to other people, one that applies to me, um, it it seems to me that there's something 
very different going on there. And that if we wanted, to, if we saw that as a negative thing and wanted to change that, it wouldn't be just a matter of changing my behavior practices or learning different techniques. I would actually have to go to the core of what I think morality is, you know, um, the preference and deference that we give ourselves, and and really address things on a, on a, on a on a deeper level than merely how do I get myself to comply with what I think is moral, but I'm failing to. Yes? What if your morality system is just more nuanced? So let's say I believe that stealing is wrong unless you need you feel that you need to steal to support your family. So by definition, your children never meet that criteria, but you yourself might be in a situation where you think you are, it is okay for you to steal. It might even be the right thing for you to steal. So, so then I wouldn't call that hypocrisy either. The trick, and this is what I think is that the, the, where, the kind of the, the, the boundary to put around hypocrisy is, is the issue me? If the issue is me, that some of the rules are different for me, then it's hypocrisy. But if the rules are different, and nothing to do with me, maybe my situation is different, but if my situation was your situation, the rules would be different for you too, then that's just more nuanced morality. That's why I didn't want to use the example of lying, because I don't think most people's moral systems, and certainly not the Torah's moral system, places a blanket ban on lying in all cases. Different kinds of lying, different situations, it may or may not be moral depending on a lot of details. So that, that's an issue of what could appear to be hypocrisy, especially if you have an unnuanced mind like the mind of a child. They don't always get that what is appropriate or ethical in one situation is not in another situation. But if I could reverse roles, so to speak, with my child and say, okay, it would be okay for my child to lie if they were in the situation I was in, well, then I wouldn't say there's anything hypocritical about it. To my mind, that, that what makes hypocrisy a very important and distinct concept is the idea that somehow you get special privileges and make a moral system that works for your own convenience and then make everyone else have to fit some other system. Yeah? So if we're going to define the definition, would you say that someone who is more or less equal in intelligence and development? Like... I know that I think you're trying to get at also like laws for lawyers versus laws for No, not at all. No, no, not at all. But like that does apply that there's certain laws. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But that does get to something else that, that I think that the antithesis of, a, of, of hypocrisy is a moral system which is consistent. Which means assuming all things are the same, then what's moral is the same. What's ethical is the same. What's right is the same. Now, I do think it is fair to say that you can have different moral systems. I could have a moral system, say the moral system of the Torah, which differentiates, as you put it, between Jews and non-Jews, which we're not going to make the topic of discussion today. And as long as the Torah is pretty consistent that the rules for Jews are one thing and the rules for Jews are another thing, and it has a consistent understanding of why that would be the case, the fact that another moral system doesn't recognize that distinction might mean that they're, they're incompatible with each other, but that doesn't make the system itself um, hypocritical. Hypocritical is that, is that I get different moral rules because it's just more convenient for me. It's easier for me. It's better for me. It, it, it's, it's kind of using this idea of, of power and privilege to have other rules. And I think that's why it's exceptionally pernicious because it, it, it's not something that you can, like once a person is engaged in, in a hypocritical approach to things, it's very hard to, to talk them out of it. Um, it's very even hard to, for them to appreciate it because they, they, they've put themselves as there are different rules for me merely because I'm me. To, to use the Jew-non-Jew distinction, let's say there's a particular non-Jew I really dislike. And let's say the Torah laws regarding non-Jews are exceptionally harsh. Both things are not true, but let's just say as a, as a thought experiment. And I'm like, oh, great, now the Torah allows me to be exceptionally harsh to this person I don't like. And then they convert. 
Well, now, according to the Torah rules, the issue is not whether I like them or dislike them. The issue is not whether, whatever beef I have them. The issue is that there's a difference between Jews and non-Jews. And now this person is Jewish, and guess what? Now I have to treat them as a Jew. Um, both those things, by the way, are not the case. The Torah is not exceptionally harsh towards non-Jews, and there's no particularly non-Jew that I... I mean, maybe, you know, Hitler and Haman and those people, but... You know, but not anybody I can think of like in what day-to-day life that I know. So that's kind of thing. If you take your privileged position out of the equation, does it, does it still make sense? Then it's not hypocritical. But, if, but if at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're saying there's special rights or, or, or powers that are for me just because it's more convenient for me, there's something hypocritical there. Um, and it is possible it could appear to be hypocritical because you just don't understand the nuance or you don't agree with the fundamental way of understanding the world. But I think it's important for a person to recognize that things are hypocritical. I mean, let's just give you an example where most people are hypocritical. Um, is that most people, most people are, um, think that honesty, that they, honesty that they're owed is at a higher level of honesty than honesty that they personally owe. So for instance, if we're having a conversation, most people feel that you should be more honest with me than I'm supposed to be honest with you. If you actually were to set the standards and think about what you feel comfortable, not necessarily overtly lying about, but hiding, not being explicit, not being clear. And yet, if you are on the receiving end of all of a sudden, there's something wrong about that. I think most people, if they were to examine themselves, there's a little bit of hypocrisy there. Um, maybe understandably, but nonetheless, I would say that, that you couldn't then say that that's kind of a moral a cohesive, cohesive moral system where, where, where there's really no reason why it should be different from one to the other. Yeah. So your definition of hypocrisy is essentially immoral. There's no yes. such thing as a moral or good version. Right, right. And that's what I think makes it a very powerful concept because it allows us to dismiss with certain things that pretend to be moral. Now, in other words, if I espouse a system of values that's hypocritical, then, then, it's, then it's not moral. If I espouse a system of values and you espouse a different system of values and they're incompatible, we're at an impasse and we might just have to agree to disagree. But if you can find something hypocritical in a moral system, in other words, on its own terms, that's not being consistent, it's not being honest, it's begging special privilege, then it's, then it's power and privilege masquerading as ethics. Isn't Judaism? That's what I want to get to. Isn't Judaism <laughs> hypocritical? You did it in moral. That's exactly what the rest of the class is about. I feel like in the comment when she gets so depressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I listened to your class with my parents, but we only got to the game. <laughs> I knew you were changing your answer. So. Okay. <laughs> yes. What, I, I'm following what you're saying, but isn't the honesty example not only or not based on convenience, but on protection? Right, but if you think protection is a valid consideration, then you should afford that protection to other people as well. I agree with you. Like, I'm not saying you should be you should be so honest. Look, I'm an extremely private person. I don't like my personal information or pictures of me or anything being publicly available. But that being said, if you think that that is in fact what is an acceptable standard, then why should you be the only one afforded that protection? You should understand the other person is also entitled to that kind of same protection. And vice versa. If they're not, then what gives you the, what, what makes you entitled? Now, again, some systems might might draw a distinction for some very good reasons. Let's say, um, let's say, um, let, the 
there is something that is asymmetrical about like if in a professional therapy session, right, where the what is acceptable for the therapist to reveal about themselves is not symmetrical to what's acceptable for the, the, the patient to reveal about themselves, right? But we can understand why that is. And if you switch the roles and the therapist themselves went to therapy, then they would have to be the more person who's more open and vulnerable. And then they shouldn't expect their therapist to be that way. So, but if you, if, 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 if what boils down to is, well, I'm different, or I'm special, or if you want to extend that, my group is different, and my group is special, therefore we get different rules just because it's nicer for us, or it's more convenient for us. If that's really the core of the distinction being made, it's hypocritical, and then it's not really ethical or moral, it's just masquerading as ethical or moral. Which then creates the question of, what about Judaism? There are many things in Judaism that could appear to be hypocritical. I'm going to focus on only one today, because we can't cover everything never cover everything but we're going to do with one which is one of the one of the laws in the Torah is that one is required to believe that the Torah is the true and the true word of God and the exclusive claim to being the word of God in other words there are there are just like there are laws of keeping Shabbos there are laws of um, I guess we would call heresy, laws of what a Jew is required to believe and not believe. And one of the things that a Jew is required to believe is that the Torah, written and oral in its entirety, as we discussed, what was it? Time flies when you're like having simchas. What was it, Wednesday? Yeah. Wednesday. I don't teach you. It must have been Wednesday. I wasn't here Thursday. Oh, Wednesday. Wednesday. So on Wednesday, we went through the, but that whole thing, the whole chart, that that is, that is the word of God. And Moreover, that that, is, that, that that Torah, the written, oral, and the whole package deal, is it and it alone is the word of God. Um, which is a very audacious and bold claim to make. Right? To pretend otherwise is, you know, to putting your head in the sand. And one can legitimately ask, okay, well, on what basis should a Jew agree to that, to assent to that, to say that, yes, that is in fact the case, that the written and oral Torah is the exclusive word of God and nothing else is. Why should a Jew agree to that? So the Torah obviously should have some sort of basis for why we agree to that. And the question is, well, what is that basis? And is the Torah being hypocritical? Or to put this in other words, is the standard that the Torah expects itself to be judged by the same standard it judges everything else by? Well, if... Well... If the Torah says, okay, and this is that, 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 I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, if I were to, if I were to tell you, um, that you should think that I'm telling the truth and you say, why? And I say, well, because I'm Rabbi Kaufman and I always tell the truth. What reason have I given you for, give, for saying thing that I'm telling you the truth? No, but right. So what am I saying? I'm saying I have special privileges here. When I say that I tell the truth, you should believe me because I said it. But because I only say the truth, right? Now, if I were to say on the other, the, the, but but now if someone else say, then I say, well, should I believe that someone else is telling me the truth? I say no, 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 no. Why? Well, they're not Rabbi Kaufman. Like, so what am I doing there? I'm saying that the standards of what's reliable when applied to me are unique to me because I'm special, but when applied to other people. But isn't that the case though? With so 
Well, okay, but here's the thing. Now what if I say you should believe me because I'm a rabbi and I've gone through some kind of training and in general, most people are honest most of the time. And therefore, when someone in a profession tells you something about the thing that they have professional training in, it is a reasonable thing to believe them until proven otherwise, which is the exact same standard you use with a doctor and a mechanic and everything else. And now I'm not pleading anything special to Rabbi Kaufman. Like, okay, so, I mean, you might agree with that standard, you might disagree with this, and there's nothing, there's nothing hypocritical about it. I'm saying, yeah, there's a standard for, you know, people who have professional training generally tend to be honest about the things that they have professional training about and tend to be well-informed. Um, you know, you might agree with that, you might disagree with it, but following that doesn't put me in any special position, right? Which is why if I start telling about neuroscience, you probably should take what I say less seriously, right? Make sense? Mm -hmm. You shouldn't dismiss it as necessarily false, <laughs> but you might want to double check. <laughs> okay. Now, you, again, you could take a like, radically skeptical approach and say, I don't trust what anybody says. That's my standard. I don't even trust my own mind. Like, fine. But then we just have different views on the matter. Okay. Yeah. So, could you repeat what you said about Torah? Are they expecting Torah? So, is Torah expecting that its legitimacy be judged on a special standard? Or does the Torah expect that it and every other claim to divine truth should be judged on the same standard? If Torah says, believe in Torah because Torah says so, <laughs> then what's Torah's, then Torah's being hypocritical. Can you say, I believe in Torah because this is the word of Hashem, and Hashem is greater than all of us? Like, that's what also the God, right? Okay. Like, is that hypocritical? So, okay, so, so... What I want to do before we go forward is I want to divide two things which sound similar but are very different. One is why you do or do not believe in the authenticity of the Torah. And it's your personal um, beliefs. And that is a separate discussion, which we might talk about tomorrow. I'm so undecided about that. Um, what we're talking about now is the Torah's standards. When the Torah says, this is how the Torah thinks you ought to judge things. In other words, I don't necessarily think these are the best words, but we'll use these words. There is, what does the Torah think are the objective criteria for judging divine truth? Which is separate from what are my subjective criteria that I'm comfortable with, okay. right? Now, I might believe the Torah simply because I grew up with it and like, that's fine for me. And like someone says they grew up with Catholicism and they're fine with that. And I was like, oh, I think you're wrong, but like, I don't fault you for following that. I mean, the Torah doesn't think that that's the standard you should use. But nonetheless, you know, I'm not being hypocritical. But that's my subjective standard. Some people might believe it because it, you know, it speaks to them in some deep soul level that they can't explain to other people. Again, that's very subjective and individual. The question is, when the Torah lays out what the standards are for, in, to, to, the mind of the, to the mind of the Torah as to how to differentiate between what is a true claim to divine wisdom and what isn't, how does the Torah see that standard being? What does the Torah see that standard? Does the Torah meet that standard? Is the Torah just making that claim on everybody else? So, last week we discussed that the Torah is, the, the revelation of the Torah, it's, its revelation is prophetic, which means that, the, that, that claiming that the Torah is divine wisdom is claiming that, 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 there was a, that God really did reveal a kind of knowledge which people can't access in another way, as we spoke about last week. Now, I mentioned at the end of that class a few things that disqualify from, for people from claiming to be a prophet. Does anyone remember what some of them were? What? They change without 
Emotional stability. If you're not emotionally stable enough to have a family, you cannot be a prophet. That was one of them. If they start changing mitzvahs. If they start changing mitzvahs, they're not a prophet. I didn't mention that, but it is true. You must have. I sent. I send you to go look up the Rambam. Did you look up the Rambam? Or maybe someone oh, else said it. Yeah. 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 That, that is one of them. No. Although my kids, whenever they come with an answer, they don't know how they say they have prophecy, which is cute, but not true. <laughs> yes. Mental stability, yeah, there's a certain degree of mental stability required. You don't give in to your animal instincts. That's right, you never give in to your animal instincts. And I have to be a little more precise, not that you never do, but you're psychologically incapable of. You have a, such a high degree of inhibition to it that no matter how powerful the animal drive is, you wouldn't give in to it. Um, you can't be ignorant, specifically of matters of theology. Like you could be ignorant of quantum science, the quantum mechanics, that, that's fine. Now, those are very nice, but, but who says those are the rules? The Torah. The Torah. <laughs> right? So, like, those rules themselves are subject to scrutiny. Like, who says those are the right rules? Maybe, like, there are, there, there's, in fact, I'm not going to mention other religions by name, but there are religions who make the claim that since their prophet was an ignorant, um, illiterate person, the only way they could have come up with this stuff is if it was prophecy. That, that, that is the actual claim. That, that someone, who is, someone who is illiterate and ignorant and mentally... Um, challenged, and they come and they reveal with divine. They reveal wise things. Must be prophecy. Yeah, that's not. Okay, that's not the Torah standards. But who's to say that the, the Torah standards are right and their standards are the wrong ones? That's exactly the question. And to say what the Torah says, that smacks of hypocrisy. You're playing. I get special rules because I'm me. Okay, so yeah. But what about saying that everyone was there at the receiving of the Torah? That like they saw that truth and therefore like there's legitimacy to saying that the Torah was received and therefore that like we're listening to the Torah which is like everyone is there for it. That is going to be part of it. The problem with that is that when you say that the way you are saying it, you lose all of the nuance and it doesn't become it's not very useful. And the way the the the, 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 the way I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate this is the following. We know that people are fickle creatures. And we know that it is not impossible for many pe- for people to conjure up memories that they did not have. Um, especially when people have a desire to fit in with their society. Which means that I could use that as a standard, but there's nothing a prayer, there's nothing that requires me to use that as the standard. And, and just to use a very... A, a, a very um, simple things that if you go through history and you ask what did the majority of people believe and they'll claim that they, they were there and they saw it there's a lot of things that are, that are not that case so for instance um, they, they, they've done interesting studies where they, where they show people pictures of a of historical event that happened in their lifetime I think the one I read was where they showed a picture of, uh, of, of uh, Barack Obama shaking hands with somebody um, and asked them if they remembered this event Remember where you were, who you talked to. People will conjure up all these sort of memories. But that picture was doctored that never happened. Like the researcher just made up the picture. So once you know that about like... like you can do that about people's own lives. Yeah. yeah. Right? This is one of the reasons why like, like investigating childhood memories is like a whole dangerous thing. And like, 
You know, there is the, there's the whole satanic cult things that people remembered satanic cults that never existed. And so I'm not saying now, so that means we should throw all memories in the garbage. No, I'm just saying that, that again, you have to, you're, there's a standard being drawn and you can disagree what the standard is and there's not an automatic a prayer assumption to say this should be the standard. So if the Torah says this is what the Torah thinks the standard is, I will, you know, let the Torah have its own standard, but it should at least be consistent. Whatever standard it holds everything else to it should also meet. So I'm not arguing why this should be the standard. I'm just saying whatever the standard is, it has to be applied consistently. Right? There's a difference between arguing why this is the correct standard, this is the correct system, versus arguing as to why it's at least not hypocritical, that it's coherent, it's consistent, you're not begging special privileges. Yeah? Yes. If you actually created the universe and you actually did give the word of God and the creator of the universe, like I'm cool with that being outside of the bounds of a lot of other things. Well, like whatever the one true religion is, I'm okay with that being different. So so that's something I want to talk about actually back in the subjective thing. The one thing I'll say is that's not truly being hypocritical. What you're just saying is that if you have something that is unique, then treating it uniquely can't be hip- is not really hypocritical. Yeah. Yeah, I fine. But, th- but that's why I'm not talking so much about God. I'm talking more about the, the claims to revelation. Right? The Jude- well, I mean, Jews have their claim to revelation, but we're not the only ones. So you're saying not like God's claim that Moses was a prophet in the Torah, but you're saying like the claim of Moses himself a person? Right, or my claim, that I'm claiming that the Torah is divine and, and, and I'm expecting you to take my believe that or not or your parents or whoever else has made those claims, what, what, why are those claims the ones you should buy into and not, you know, the, you know, almost two billion Muslims or something else, okay? Now, again, this is not why you personally should or shouldn't. This is the standard the Torah sets for itself, what it thinks the standard is. Why you would buy the Torah standard, that's your own personal thing. So, the th- first thing is to say, okay, well, what, what, in the Torah... The Torah, well, the Torah actually has a lot of different standards for when we should believe things depending on the situation. For instance, should you believe that this is my jacket? Yes. Why? Because I'm, I'm wearing it, right? So when we talk about movable property, possession creates a presumption of ownership. That's, so that is a Torah standard. Okay? Now... That's true, which is why it creates a presumption of ownership. Presumption of ownership means that if you want to show that it's not mine, you have to bring proof. But in an absence of proof, we will treat it as belonging to me. Right? Okay. So different things have different standards. Now, um, one of the things in the Torah is that there's capital punishment, which we're not going to get into why there's capital punishment, but there is capital punishment, which means putting people to death. And what is the standard that the Torah sets for evidence in order to put someone to death. Does anyone know? Yeah. Two kosher witnesses. Two kosher witnesses. Yeah. That they, there's no pork mixed into these witnesses whatsoever. No. <laughs> Two witnesses. <laughs> yeah. The word kosher just by the way means valid. So it's meaning adjust depending on the context. Kosher for witnesses is different than kosher for food. So two, two witnesses that meet the standards of, witness, of testimony. Okay. Yeah. But how do we know that they did that? In the presence of two, two, eyewitnesses. two eyewitnesses. Two eyewitnesses. Who are Jews, I think are men, and their testimony is 
testimonies can't differ at all. Right. So, so the, the there's a lot of there's a lot of rules to this. What I want to focus on specifically is the fact they need to be eyewitnesses. In other words, um, in American law, the standard to convict someone, even to put them to death, is anyone know? No, grand jury is in order to indict them. And grand jury is a group of people that indicts them. What standard do you have to meet in order to... Con- beyond. beyond. a reasonable doubt, right? It's a phrase people have heard. Does anyone know what that means, beyond a reasonable doubt? What does that mean? There is no doubt. No, 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 no. It doesn't mean... It means, it means, no, it means, it means there is doubt. But the doubt you would have to create would have to be unreasonable. So, for instance, you say, well, how do you know that he killed him? Maybe there was somebody hiding, you know, in the basement who came out quickly and killed him while nobody was looking and then ran away. And you're like, well, that's unreasonable. That's like, that, that, would, that can't happen. You say, well, could it have happened? Isn't it possible? You say, well, it's possible, but, but it's just so unreasonable. And the thing is, doubt it, in American law, doubt is fine as long as that doubt does not, the, the, the conviction can be, even when there's a case of doubt, as long as that doubt is an unreasonable doubt. A reasonable doubt, that's not good enough. Now, there's other standards. Like, for instance, in some kinds of court cases, they will have what's called the preponderance of the evidence, which means more likely than less likely. So you say, okay, given, given what we've heard, it's more likely that he did it. Is that good enough to put someone to death in American law? No. No. In American law, you need that, that the only way to doubt this is to assume something totally unreasonable. That doesn't guarantee that he did it. But that's the standard. The Torah standard for putting someone to death is that you need two witnesses who actually saw the event, claim to have seen the entire event, from beginning to the end. If you don't have that, even if you're beyond a reasonable doubt, even if um, there's, there's no doubt for that matter, you can't put someone to death. So in a case where it is logically impossible for him to have not done it, but no one actually saw them, that is considered insufficient evidence. Yeah. No, that that gets into whole standard of what counts as valid witnesses, and I don't want to get into that. Um, not because it's not interesting, but because it doesn't directly relate, and we really only so much time. But yes, there are a whole set of halachas as what counts as a valid witness. But if the witness cannot actually if the witness is not actually claiming to have seen the, the, the offense firsthand, <coughs> then capital punishment cannot happen, even if logically they, they did the crime. Even, though, even if it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. Which, by the way, does kind of limit how often the death penalty can be imposed, right? Okay. Yes? What do they need to see? The crime. But, like, if it happened in the dark... Then you've got a problem. Identify no good. Person and they say like, yeah, it was like out of a lineup of faces. It was this guy. Nope. So, so how do you know that they, like, they, they need to have seen the person on the spot and like, John, or, or how? Yeah, they have to. They have to. They have to see that person. Know who that person? Well, the, see, in 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 in, 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 in biblical in biblical law, that's the witnesses who make the case in court. They serve as the prosecutors. So they are the ones who go to the court and say, we saw so-and-so did do this crime. Can they say, we saw a guy of this height and this color hair with no. two earrings? No. Okay. No. <laughs> okay. No. 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 Yes. How can we take the testimony of someone who saw something if we can say that seeing something 
isn't as valid, isn't like the most valid thing? Um, I well, first off, who says it's not the most valid thing? I mean, like people saw Barack Obama shaking someone's hand that wasn't there. Or people saw it, or were people prompted? See they that. conjured a memory. There's very difference. There's a very big difference between those two things. In other words, the way the way the way this works in a, in a Jewish court, the way this works in a Jewish court is the kind of the exact opposite of that experiment. The people have to first come of their own volition. The witnesses come and say, "We saw someone do this crime," and then they separate the witnesses and they say, "You do realize that if you are saying something false, how grave of a sin it is." And they and and they and the and the uh, court of twenty three judges. That's a lot of judges. Yeah. So you've got the one witness by themselves, no one else, other than twenty three judges assistant judges and uh, someone writing things down, no defense attorney, and they are um, basically intimidating him into making sure that he's not, and threatening him, that if he's saying it has been false, how grave of a sin it is, and that maybe he's misremembering, and maybe he's not sure, and how could he really know? And once they do all of that, they say, but if you are, did actually see this, then you have a mitzvah to go and tell us. And, now, and then he has to lay out the facts in great detail. Time, place, day of the week, um, they, the month he ha- they have to the you know the you know all sorts of secondary details, um, um, under what's, what I guess you call them like more modern things under hostile cross examination, and then they do that with the other witness and only then if to the side of the two stories check out it's kind of the opposite of trying to conjure a person or a person feels the pressure to to have seen something is kind of the opposite. Now does that mean it's foolproof? No, but that's the standard the Torah has. If, in other words, the highest standard of evidence that the Torah sets is two witnesses who directly saw it and volunteer that and maintain under hostile cross-examination. That's, that's the standard. Okay? What if those people tell other people what happened? Can they then go to court and say? No. No. Okay. All right. Well, that means... That for the that means for the for the harshest punishments in the Torah, the standard of the Torah is firsthand eyewitness testimony. Okay, well then, what standard would the laws of the Torah have to meet then? At minimum, that standard, because the laws of the Torah are the laws that tell us to put people to death under certain circumstances. So those laws, in other words, when you're putting someone to death, you need to know two things. You need to know what the laws. And what the facts are. So the witnesses are providing the facts. The Torah is providing the law, right? So the standard of evidence, which I'm judging my knowledge of the facts, my not judging the knowledge of the law should be the same standard. So if I need firsthand eyewitness testimony in order to know the facts of the case, then how do I know the law in the case? How do I know which crimes are punishable by death and which ones aren't? I would need to have firsthand direct knowledge, just one second, which would mean the only way I could ever put someone to death is if God directly spoke to me. Because that's the only way I would have first-hand knowledge of the law, right? Any other time that I know the law, how do I know the law? How do I know the law? <coughs> you read it I read it in books written by people. I heard from people. How do you know the law? Same thing. So who's the only person then who should be able to carry out Torah punishments? Someone who's directly heard from God what the law is. Which means that it seems that the Torah standard for divine wisdom is first-hand knowledge. And that would make it impossible for the Torah to be acceptable. Right? It would be impossible for the Torah to say you should believe the Torah unless the Torah was given to each individual person. Now, was the Torah given to each individual person? I don't mean this in some mystical way. I mean like in a real way. 
Like yeah. you, you, you recall being at Mount Sinai? You had a direct encounter with God who conveyed you the divine wisdom? No. Okay, so no. Yes. All right, if you had a case where two witnesses, kosher witnesses, whatever, showed up and, you know, in great detail after a hostile cross-examination said, such and such person did such and such crime, you know, mm-hmm. on the, out on the street at this time, on this day, be whatever. And then after this case, like, starts happening, because it seems like, okay, this happened, three other people show up and go like, well, we were at a cocktail party with him at that exact time. And then they all get cross-examined and all three of them are saying, like, no cocktail party, he was there wearing this color pants, whatever. Like, what do you do then when you have, like, enough witnesses and also people who are totally so the standard rule is, and I don't want to go for division, the standard rule is that if you have two sets of witnesses that contradict each other, then the court um, dismisses the case. They don't go based on the majority of witnesses. Just once, if you have two groups of witnesses says he did it, and one group, one set says he did it, and another said he doesn't do it, and both of the testimonies check out, then case dismissed. Yeah, you need, it needs to be, un, uh, you, there is sometimes like technical stuff, but that's the basic rule. Uncontested. Yeah. After the final cross examination of everything, but yeah. Um, this is probably going to be uh, needed to answer another time when we have more time, but can we, like next class or something, go into how the trial and execution of Eichmann went down and how that was made permissible and I would have no idea how it's permissible according to Torah. Not that my gut doesn't say that's a good thing, but like that, it just, I don't know. You would have to ask Rabbi Breidowitz. That probably is a better person to ask. Okay, so this creates a problem, which is that if the standard that the Torah sets for knowing, for, for being absolutely sure that something is the correct judgment of God is that you need firsthand eyewitness, then how is it possible for anybody who isn't directly receiving revelation to say, make a claim, this is in fact the wisdom of God. This is the divine word and nothing else. That seems to be the standard the Torah holds. Um, now, this question then is divided into two. If you talk about the first generation of the Jews who left Egypt and stood at Mount Sinai, this is not really a problem because the Torah describes them all receiving the revelation. In other words, all the Jewish people had a revelation that told them that Moshe will give them the, the rest of the information. So um, the, the Torah. What? So the Torah. No, no, but I'm saying that there's co- it's coherent. In other words, the Torah standards is you need, you, need for, you, need, you need eyewitness, you need first-hand experience, right? Okay. So, the Jew, so the Torah is saying, the Jews who lived at the time of Mount Sinai had that experience. Okay. In other words, the standard is being met. If the standard is you have to see it for yourself, they saw it for themselves. So when a Jew who was at Mount Sinai believed that Moshe was telling them the word of God, it was because they had their own prophecy telling them to rely on Moshe. Yes. Okay? So that's fine for them, but that doesn't help for generations afterwards. Right? If you had a prophecy, and that prophecy told you to believe um, what some other person says, okay, well then that would meet the Torah standards. That's fine. But what happens when you don't have that prophecy? What happens if you're the generations born afterwards, or two, or three, or five, or 20, or 50 generations afterwards? And it's hypocritical. That would be like admitting hearsay in a court, right? If the witnesses told other people to tell other people to tell other people to tell the court what happened, we would, we would throw that out, right? So then why is it okay to say that people told people told people told people, and now 3,000 years later, we're supposed to accept that that's what happened? If you can't do that in a court of law, 
with the with the facts of the case, why can you do that as the tradition as to what is in fact the correct will and wisdom of God? And so it seems that the Torah by relying on a tradition is being hypocritical. Again, the Jews who were there at Mount Sinai, they had the, the way that the way the Torah describes the story is that they not that Moshe came down and told them, they had a direct prophecy from God, and that they're from then on to rely on Moshe. But that only works for them. It doesn't work for the ongoing generations. Okay. So how does the Torah get out of this problem? It says that Jews are all the reincarnation of those people. Yeah, but as a general rule, we don't like to imply, use mysticism as a way out of like real problems. It's like, we're all at Mount Sinai. Yes, but like, you know. Yeah, how, those people, where, 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 where are they trusting Moshe? And they're trusting Moshe about killing people. Right? He's going to tell him to go kill a bunch of people. And if the standard of going to kill people is that you have to have first-hand knowledge, they don't have first-hand knowledge of reliability of Moshe. They know Moshe's reliable because their parents told them. I'm going to tell you the answer, and then I want you to, to, to think for a minute as to why explain this. The rule that one person can't tell another person and that can be considered reliable doesn't apply when you talk about a court. In other words, if you have one court telling another court, that's okay. So if I see the facts and then I tell you, and you can't go test my court, that's here, so that's not good. But if one court knows something and they tell another court, that is okay. Why is court to court valid, but person to person not valid? What makes the court different? To get, to get that information, they had to have reliable sources. No, consensus is dangerous because once we start playing the consensus rule, we've been in the minority for the vast majority of human history, right? So we, 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 Jews, we do not want to play the consensus card, at least not without having some other factors as well. Yeah. Just in terms of secular courts, there's a, there's a, everything said in court is said like under oath. Mm -hmm. And we've taken that to be a standard that like if it was said under oath, we assume that to be true. And then we'll repeat that with confidence. Okay, so then why can't you take an oath and have a witness. And by the way, and this is actually different than secular court, you can make what's called an affidavit, which is you basically you testify in front of one person, they write down your testimony, and then you don't have to show up to court. And that does not work in Jewish law. You can't testify under oath and then not show up. Because you did under oath, so now like someone else can just repeat your testimony. Here's the here's the paper sign that this what doesn't work like that. Yeah. If a court's gone through all of the laws that it has to go through and they've done all of the things that are correct, then it's going a gap like with the laws of the Torah that like they're not going to say someone's going to be, have to be killed if they aren't that they're going to try to the nth degree to make sure that the truth comes out then that makes it in itself a trustworthy source to give over to another one so let me ask you a question what if Moshe comes to court so he's like supposed to be the most trustworthy person on he comes to court and says I didn't see the murder but someone told me there's a murder and I completely trust him is that a, is that a valid testimony in court so trustworthiness is not really the issue because the Torah invalidates one witness telling, telling a second person to then go tell the court even when there's no doubt as to their trustworthiness. 
In fact, the, the biggest evidence of that is that if that person claimed to have seen it themselves, we would have believed them. Right? It's not about trustworthiness. One group of people telling another group of people? It's not on a like, small... So if I have a group of witnesses tell another group of witnesses, then that'll work? The group does have something to do, but that's not enough. They've come to a census together, like 23 people. Have... The, the, the reason is, the reason is, you want to try? <laughs> when the court puts someone to death, did they see the murder? No. So why are they allowed to put someone to death? <clears throat> they didn't see the murder. So didn't they? Oh, because the role of a court is to receive the truth. We have to differentiate between two different roles. There is conveying the truth and receiving the truth. As an individual, do you have the power to convey the truth, to be a witness? The answer is yes. But as an individual, do you have the power to receive the truth? No. No. So if I tell someone else, I can convey the truth, but they can't receive it. It's like, if I have a pitcher, I can pour the water, but if there's no cup, the water just spills all over the place. The function of a court is to actually receive the truth, to be like that cup of water. So when you testify in front of the court and the court has received it, right? Now, this is one of the reasons why a court has to be, comp- the rules for comprising court are different than the rules for witnesses because the role of a court is not, the, is not to merely convey the truth, but to actually receive the truth. And, and if you want to use like a physical analogy for this, can you keep a flame in existence for a very long time? If you keep giving logs, right? So you can have a, 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 a flintstone which can start the fire, but if you want to keep it in existence, you need something that can hold on the fire. And as long as you replace things that can hold on that fire, that flame can continue to exist for a long time. So the role of a court is to be like logs to a fire. Is that the role of a court is meant to receive the truth. That is its function. And so the court is actually considered to be like just like you put a picture in a frame, you put a you know, fire as in logs, the water is in a cup. The thing that is supposed to hold the truth, of the, the hold the truth, whether it's the truth of the facts of the case or the truth of the revelation, is that institution is called the court. In, the, in Hebrew, it's called the bastin. And so if the bastin receives the truth, if the court receives the truth, they are considered to be first they're considered to be like, like, like uh, not receiving it secondhand. They're considered to be the, f- the firsthand. That's why the court can put some death based on someone else's testimony. So if one court tells another court what the case, wh- what, the, what the facts are or what the law is, because a court can receive the truth, a court can, you can pass on from court to court to court to court throughout history, which is, this is what the Torah sees as different, is that if you don't have the establishments of um, a, a rabbinic institutions that are f- functioning in this way, then there is no reliability. My father told me that his father told him that his father told him is great for a lot of stuff, but you can't put people to death based on that. The Torah does not recognize personal tradition as a valid method of differentiating between the truth and falsehood of divine wisdom. It says there has to be some larger social system in place, some kind of a, 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 an institution in place whose job it is to preserve that. And if that isn't in place, there's no reliability. The fact that the rabbis for the last, I don't know how many generations, did not have the ability to put people to death, how do we trust anything? Oh, so it's very interesting is that, is that that's actually a lot of the Torah, basically our tradition ends at the Talmudic sages. Because at that point, the institutions are weakened 
and they don't have that full thing. So for instance, there's a lot of things that we just, you know, we have the, basically the Torah as it was received up to a certain generation and then that's it. At that point, it's, it's, we're, we're, that's what makes the Talmud so binding. That's what makes the, the um, and the, 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 you know, when you start them breaking up specific claims in the Torah, then you can trace, you have to trace them back. So if someone is going to make the claim that something is, you know, part of the tradition or not part of the tradition, it's not enough for a person just to claim, well, I heard this from somebody. Is what is the institutions that are built around this? Okay. Now, I want to end on a, on, a, on a difficult point here, which is what this means is that as much as in Judaism we do have this idea of the individual and the importance of the individual, the survival of Judaism is based on institutions. Okay? And we actually, is based on institutions. Um, when ya- the, the Medrash alludes to this when it says that when Yaakov went down to Egypt, he sent his son Yehuda there first. And why did he send Yehuda there first? Does anyone know what he was supposed to do? He was supposed to set up yeshivas. Okay? The idea is that if you don't set up institutions whose job it is to not just um, not just pass down the tradition, but actually have a way of holding on to the tradition. Now, how do you do that? What is the procedures? That's a, that's another discussion. But if those institutions aren't in place, then the then the well, my the previous generation told the pre, told me that the previous generation said that that doesn't meet the Torah standard. Okay, um, and and that goes back to what you're saying about the idea of some, something is nuanced. It's not hypocritical. It's not that the Torah says that you can't have truth go from one person to another person. It's just the question, is that person acting in an individual capacity? Or is that person a member of an institution? It's the institution that's doing the transmitting. And as far as Judaism is concerned, in order for later generations to be able to claim that this is in fact a revelation of God's wisdom, you need to have two things. You need to that the initial revelation was directly to the people. And number two, that that tradition was passed on through some kind of institutional mechanism and not simply just one person telling another person or one group of people as acting as individuals telling another group of people because that's what Torah considered to be hearsay. Yeah. Isn't the Talmud just a book of hearsay? No. I mean, the whole thing is Rabbi, Rabbi said this and then Rabbi, or Abaya said this back and then Rabbi said something else back and then they argue about who said what to begin with and then they tell a story. Like the whole thing Well, like that's, 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 that, but that's not how it works. I mean, the the the, way, the 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 way the the way institutions work is that they have to have systems in place. Now, the, one of the systems that's in place in, in in the court is consistency. And so, most of the discussions in the Talmud are ways of trying to ascertain the consistency of different parts of the tradition. But I'm saying, like, how is the Talmud different than, you said that you can't, I can't give testimony to Jessica, write it down, sign it, and then have Jessica present it in court. So why is it that they wrote down all the things they said in the Talmud, and now, like, you can hand me a book of the Talmud, and somehow I trust that? Because that was done in an institutional setting. There wasn't, it wasn't just, like, some person just, like, on the side. There, there was, first off, the, the... Okay. In other words... It's like, how do I put this? But let's use witness. Testimony in court is different than testimony out of court. Okay. 
Like, if you say something out of court, it doesn't have the same impact because it's, it's being done in the presence of the court. So the discussions in the Talmud, there, there has to be, the, the, the discussions in the Talmud are done in a particular context. They're done in a particular framework of, of who's participating, who's qualified to participate. Um, and you see this actually sometimes, that the, the, there's certain things in the Talmud. Like, at one point, um, there's, somebody mentions something in the Talmud, and uh, the Talmud says, well, well, the Talmud says, well, well who was it? Was it th- as a person A or person B? And the, the, the implication is that this person is not known for being particularly good with his memory. And therefore that should disqualify him from participating in these kinds of discussions because he is known to uh, misremember. And, what is the, and the, the Gemara's response to that is that in this particular instance it was okay because he repeated the teaching literally as he walked out of the classroom. Um, and so there's, there's the, 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 the idea of like setting up a, an a priori system of formal rules is something that comes later, but there's, there's rules for what's considered an acceptable way of participating, what's not considered an acceptable way of participating. And the Talmud infrequently, but enough, shoots things down and dismisses things as, un, as out of the bounds of how the structure of, the, of this works, that you can then retroactively kind of figure out what were the rules and what was acceptable, what was not acceptable. So for instance, in Talmudic times, you group people into three kinds of people, roughly speak, four, actually. You had the Amma'aretz, which was a person who was, did not know how to read scripture and translate it. You had a, 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 a Kroy, who was someone who could read and translate scripture. You had a Tana, which is someone who, who was able to retain oral teachings accurately, verbatim. And then you had what was called an Amora. An Amora was someone who, in addition to all three of those things, had demonstrated sufficient mastery of the methodology that they could resolve contradictions, um, and that would, and if a person didn't have that, didn't didn't meet that level of mastery, just their what they said just didn't count. It was just, you know, someone just opening their mouth and blabbing words. Um, if, like if you did not know the entire mission by heart, then then what you say in the discussion just isn't valid because you're speaking from ignorance, and that's the end of that. And and there there were rules and. Of who is admitted to these discussions, who's not admitted to these discussions, and you know, there's, there's, we're always debates. You know, do you, on the one hand, broader is better because you get more different people participating. On the other hand, that does lower the quality, and so there's always this tension of where you draw those lines. But in in every era, there is always the sense that there who is who is qualified to participate, and even today, like if, if you know, if, if you want to, you know, if you want to have an opinion. Or, or, or even to be taken seriously, um, you need to be show a, a, a certain level of, of mastery. You know, like in any like in any institution, right? The medical professions they have institutions for these things, and, and that's the thing. There has to be an institutional framework for preserving these. And if it's simply word to mouth, then that's private. That even if it's word to mouth of a bunch of people, even if it's groups of people, it still doesn't have that kind of integrity as uh, the court. And so it's not the many people, it's that those many people are organized into some kind of a sanctioned institution. Now, again, the specifics of what counts and what doesn't count and the different levels, that goes beyond the scope of this class. But that's how the Torah seems to be preserved, is on this institutional level, which means there needs to be some kind of, uh, maybe not professional because they're not actually getting paid, but there needs to be some kind of class of people who are taking it as their responsibility to receive the tradition in each generation so it's available for the next generation afterwards. The the the, the Amaaretz is someone who is who is ignorant. Um, Kroy is someone who knew how to read and translate the written Torah, the scripture. 
Tan is someone who knew the Mishnah by heart, and usually other oral teachings as well, verbatim. And an Amiru is somebody who could actually... This was in the era of the Talmud. Earlier generations, the, the wording had slightly different meanings, and, and later generations, but in the era of the Talmudic sages, this was, this was how those words were used. So Yeah. No, no, no. The ignorant person just basically it was nothing. They couldn't participate in anything. So then the menorah was someone... Uh, Amora, not menorah. Menorah is what you later Hanukkah. Amora was someone who had to know all of scripture by heart and all of the entire Mishnah by heart. Verbatim. And then that, that's, even bef- and that's even before like, they could participate in this discussion. Which is actually one of the reasons why is it always a legitimate question. If any Amora ever says something in discussion which implies ignorance of a Mishnah, we presume that they were not ignorant and they had a different understanding of it because to qualify in this discussion you had to be aware of it. So then you have to backtrack how do they understand that, that precedent differently. And that's the idea is that, that it, if it's merely a matter of he said that he said that he said going all the way back, it doesn't have that hard line that differentiates Judaism from everything else. What differentiates is that we have a tradition of institutions that go all the way back. In other words, rabbinic establishment institutions today are the continuation of the same institutions of, go, of things that have gone all the way back to Moshe, not just people saying things to each other. Yes? Last question, then I have to run. Right. On, on the, this is a bigger question, but like when it comes to trusting institutions rather than people, Generally, I respect that. When you mentioned the medical community, we have so many crises in the medical community because, um, like, the garbage that Andrew Wakefield published in research uh, to say that vaccines are linked to mm-hmm. autism, which has created a horrible crisis, um, that he was functioning within an institution who was published in a medical journal. Um, he's cited uh, by other medical journals and um, viewed as a member of an institution, and he's created a disaster. Um, so, I mean, how do we know that the Talmudic institution was not impervious to that kind of mess? So, 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 so the answer to that is that, 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 that it, it, what you're saying is slightly inaccurate. Um, there are two kinds of institutions. There are institutions that acknowledge that things can go wrong and therefore have mechanisms for dealing with them. But that does mean that you always run the risk about a particular issue, you know, you have to, like, you're taking a risk. And then there are institutions that pretend that, there's, that nothing can ever go wrong, and then they're never self-correcting. And we all understand that a functional institution has to be self-correcting, and which means it has to have ways of dealing with that, which is why there are several parts of the Torah dealing with the fact that the institutions have, can, can, can make mistakes, and how are those mistakes accounted for and directed. So, Let's assume for argument's sake that the medical institution is actually the proper kind of institution. Yes, something can get abused and something can perpetuate itself, but eventually the system has to come back and correct itself. And we do see that. We, we see that in Jewish history, that, that, that the rabbinical establishment sometimes fractures for a generation or two before they figure out how to put things back together. We do see, you know, that that's not an unheard of thing. Or we do see that sometimes that the rabbinic establishment... Um, um, loses a lot of authority and then bounces. There's different, there's different issues, but there have to be ways of dealing with that. There's actually a whole tractate in the Talmud that deals with what happens when the rabbinic establishment makes a mistake. How do you correct and adjust for that? So, but the point is there has to be an institutional framework. There has to be some sort of set of how does this work rather than just somebody told somebody that somebody said that somebody said that somebody said, even if it's perfectly reliable because the Torah says even perfect reliability doesn't get to the standard of 
the of, of eyewitness testimony. The only thing that can, can parallel eyewitness testimony is an institution designed to absorb, receive, and house the truth. And so you need to have those establishments in place, which is why wherever Jewish communities go, one of the first things they have to set up is rabbinic establishments. You know, people and or institutions are going to make a priority of doing that. Thank you, Rabbi. Go play with the baby. Your hat! Your hat! <laughs>